All right, we are back in Genesis today after hearing from one of our missionaries last week. I hope you were as blessed as I was by hearing about the work that the Warrens do in Ethiopia working with HIV-AIDS patients. I'm going to start, though, talking about marriage. Marriage is hard. As those of us who have entered in, I can't tell if my wife's agreeing or disagreeing. Um, I think she'd probably agree, but we know every romance is wonderful. Dating, courtship, feels like so much fun. Getting engaged, planning the wedding can be euphoric. The wedding itself, if, if not too much goes wrong, can just be a dream day, right? And then the honeymoon is wonderful. But then the marriage itself starts, and as we say, the honeymoon is over. And things sometimes can go wrong. And there are misunderstanding and assumptions and expectations that are not met. And it's very easy to blow up at one another when you don't agree and you, you just know you're right and your spouse is wrong. Marriage is wonderful too, but we have to go into it with our eyes wide open, ready for that. But there's something that can just bring a marriage relationship to a whole nother level of difficult in-laws. Hmm? The second set of dad and mom, who usually aren't a whole lot like the first set of dad and mom, and so it, you don't usually understand them. You don't know where they're coming from. And you don't have a 20 plus year relationship history with them but you've got to try to get along. Now some in-laws, like mine and my wife's, are wonderful <laughs> and generous and a pleasure to be with. Some others I've heard are not so much. They're difficult. They hold it against their new son or daughter-in-law that they're not good enough for their child. They try to control things. They, they intervene inappropriately. They, they otherwise cause hurt with their attitudes and behaviors. Today's passage brings us back to the life of Jacob, one of the patriarchs, and it concentrates on his relationship with his father-in-law Laban, also his uncle, but a man who gives in-laws a bad name. A greedy, manipulative man. Jacob has worked seven years for Laban for the wife he didn't want. And then seven years for the wife that he did want. All for his father-in-law. And now where we pick up the text, 11 sons have come along. So... Jacob's got a full family, but he doesn't have much to show 
for all of these years. I mean, he's got his family, but he's saying, hey, I got nothing to feed my family. I've got nothing to show materially if I leave, but I've got to leave Laban. I've got to make a break. I want to head home. You know, it's hard enough to have good relationship with in-laws when you live close by, but it's even harder when you're in business together. And so this, this account is a lot about their business relationship and separating himself from that. So we're going to see how Jacob acts with an in-law who acts more like an outlaw. You know, I had to use that joke somehow. But throughout it all, we see that God has not abandoned Jacob. That God's hand of protection is on his life, just as we saw it with his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. This is a long passage, but it's, it's got over 70 verses. It's got all kinds of intrigue and double-crossing. And I was tempted to, to just uh, make it shorter and uh, summarize some of it, but we're going to read through it. Because I think there's a lot of good stuff in here. We're going to start with the end of chapter 30, verses 25 through 43. And here we see that God protects Jacob despite Laban's mistreatment. So as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, his 11th child, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He, Laban, said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you, do th- if you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages." So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen, Laban said. Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. 
Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. So at the beginning, Jacob brings his request. No accusations at the beginning. He says, I want to be allowed to leave. And this is greeted by a slightly alarmed Laban who realizes that he's going to be losing his best employee. Never mind that he's going to lose his daughters and his grandkids. We know Laban's a businessman. And as Jacob has pointed out, Laban had very little before he put Jacob to work. Now now he's a wealthy man. And it's interesting that both sides acknowledge that God is the source of this prosperity. Laban says, I learned it by divination, essentially by pagan sorcery, ungodly means. But Jacob knows this from walking with God and from trusting Him. So they strike a new deal. And Laban essentially says, name your price. Maybe some of you in business have seen this or have been part of it. And When you're about to lose your best employee, you say, whatever it takes. I just want to keep you on. Let's cut a new deal. And so that's what he does. And Jacob doesn't necessarily want to go away empty-handed. So he's willing to propose something. And I don't think that he's initially taking advantage of Laban. He could have really pressed him. But he says, yeah, I don't want you to give me anything. Here's what we'll do. All right, I'll take all the sheep and the goats that aren't pure color. And that way we'll know exactly whose sheep is whose and which goats. And you can't accuse me of cheating you. And it'll be pretty clear cut. And Laban apparently thinks this is a great deal. Because I think he thinks the odds are in his favor. That Many more of the breeding products will be pure. But just in case, he moves all of the speckled and spotted and the black lambs. He moves them three days' journey from Jacob. I mean, he's cheating from the very first day. But Jacob stays, and he works for another six years. Now, I've always puzzled. I don't know if you've read this story before and wondered what's going on here. It's a little like the mandrakes from when Rachel and Leah were having babies. And we don't really understand it today. There's some method that Jacob is using of, of having strips of, uh, from trees, and that's supposed to influence the breeding. Now, I read some commentary that said there's basically three options here. Number one is that maybe Jacob knows, knew something that we don't know. I mean, modern farmers, modern animal breeders don't do this. Now, we don't, we don't really know how this worked, but maybe he was on to something and we've just lost it over time. Well, that's possible. The second is that, hey, maybe this was just some superstition and this shows how Jacob relied on ungodly method, but God eventually redeems it anyways in spite of what Jacob is doing. But I think the third way, and this was one of John Calvin's views, and I think this makes sense, is that God 
had Jacob used this method, even though it didn't have any, really have any power in itself. And he gives the parallel that when God told Moses to hold up a bronze serpent to heal all the Israelites that looked up, well, there was no power in the bronze serpent of itself. I mean, if we held that up today, nobody here would be healed. It's not that that had power, but it was God working through some natural means to achieve a supernatural result. But regardless of the answer, Jacob is a master breeder. And, but God reveals to Jacob, actually in the next chapter, we'll get to that, but I'm going to read that now, is that he says, I'm the one who is prospering you. If you jump ahead to uh, 31, verse 12, God reveals to Jacob in a dream, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. God is with Jacob in these six years, protecting and prospering him, just as he'd been with him the previous 14 years. And he's made his flocks grow large. So now we jump into chapter 20, 31, the first 21 verses. And we see in, in this section of the text that God protects Jacob despite anger and jealousy. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. 
Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling them that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So people are starting to notice. Wow, Jacob's got these huge flocks. And Laban's sons start accusing him of taking advantage of their father, conveniently ignoring the fact that he has prospered Laban greatly and that he has abided by the terms of their deal. But anytime there's success, there is jealousy and accusation. That's what happens. And Jacob reads the writing on the wall and decides that it's time to part ways with Laban. And God confirms this. Go home. But first he has to bring his wives on board. And so he brings them out to the field and lays out his case. And essentially he says, hey, your dad's a jerk. He's greedy. He's constantly changing my wages. He's trying every way he can to cheat us. But God has made it so that whenever he changes the deal, God swings it back in our favor. And God has revealed it to me that it's time to go. And instead of Rachel and Leah saying, hey, don't talk about dad like that. They know their father. They have many more years with him than Jacob did. And they're even more angry than he is, it sounds like. That you think you got cheated? We are getting nothing. Where is our inheritance? Right? He treats us like foreigners. He sold us. Everything you stole from him should be ours anyways. Let's go. Whatever God has told you, let's go. And this is kind of amazing after the competition between these two sisters that they agree on anything. But so Jacob takes his whole household, his sons, his wives, camels, everything, and takes off. And he times it right. He knows that Laban's away shearing his sheep and he's going to be away for a few days. And so they get a great head start. But we know when we get to the end of this these verses that the draw the tension's mounting. Right? It says Jacob has tricked Laban. Rachel has stolen the gods. Laban's not going to stand for this. He's not going to let this go. So we pick it up in verse 22, where God protects Jacob despite Rachel's sin in this next section. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? 
that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid. For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. So Laban hunts down his son-in-law. And he pretends that he's really concerned that he left without having a party thrown. Surely he would have said this beautiful, touching goodbye. He couldn't even kiss his grandkids. Why are you so mean? But Jacob's just a little bit skeptical about that. I think instead of a party, he thinks that Laban would have separated his family and forced him to stay. And eventually we find out what Laban really cares about, right? Where his household gods. He searches high and low for them because they are near and dear to him. We already know that Laban cares more about his money than its family because he uses his family to make money and then he cheats them out of what he should have shared with them. But now we see that he has put his trust in cheap trinkets that don't actually have any power. I mean, he gives lip service to Jacob's God, but his trust is in false gods. And remember that one of the main things that Moses is trying to communicate throughout the writing of Genesis is to remind the Israelites of the great contrast between the power of their awesome God and the impotence of the false gods and idols of the pagan nations living around them. I mean, not only are these household gods powerless to keep Rachel from stealing them, but Moses is essentially parrying their very existence. That a menstruating woman would be sitting on them is to defile them. That's the height of an insult. Whether Rachel is lying or not, it's, it's a joke. Moses is mocking these false gods. Mark Driscoll, pastor in Seattle, tells a story of 
being in India to teach at a pastor's conference. And he remembers seeing these gods everywhere. And he said, basically, you're walking down the road, and there's a little hut, and you go in, and there's chicken feathers and blood and a picture of some god, and they're slaughtering animals in there for the god who lives in that little jurisdiction. And I remember thinking, this is the craziest place I've ever seen. And then he went and talked to the pastor's wife. He said, how come your husband, when your husband comes to America, you don't come? And she says, I just can't stomach all the idolatry. He says, what are you talking about? This place is full of idolatry. You've got people slaughtering chickens out in the road for the ditch god. And she says, go to America. Faces of heroes, athletes, rock stars, musicians, politicians, people that are beautiful, people that are rich, people that are wealthy. People worship their cars. People worship their dogs. People worship their hobbies. People worship their teams. And Mark Driscoll just stopped in his tracks and said, yeah, wow, we are an idolatrous people. It looks really different than biblical times in other countries. But if you stop, our idols can be pretty obvious. Now I know we've talked about a lot about idolatry in Genesis because it is a major theme. And if you haven't stopped and given your life a good hard look when you hear this in any of these sermons, we've mentioned them multiple times, I hope that you will spend some time today or this week and ask yourself or someone close to you, what are the idols in my life? Why do I think that they'll satisfy me? Why do I run after them? And how can I release their power on me? I know I've talked about my idols and how probably my biggest one is wanting to be people to be impressed with me to think well of me. And I constantly have to remind myself that that doesn't matter. And yet I strive for it anyways. I wish that that Rachel would steal that idol from me and that someone would. How freeing that would be. And the ironic thing about idols is God has already given you what you're chasing after. Think about it, as, as we look for approval and applause, God has already declared you just and worthy through Christ. Those who look for love and intimacy, God has already give you, given you an abundant, everlasting love. Those who idol is riches and wealth, God has blessed you lavished on you His grace and the riches of heaven. You show me an idol and I will show you how God has already provided it to the believer. And so now we have the final section of this account of this story. Verses 36 through 55, God protects Jacob by releasing him to go home. Then Jacob, remember Laban has just finished searching and hasn't found anything, hasn't found his gods. 
So Jacob becomes angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, (laughs) that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked me, rebuked you last night. Wow, that's quite a list of resentments that Jacob is carrying around. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom you have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galeed. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mitzpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. So the covenant and the heap, the pillar, seem like such a good ending, doesn't it? Two men departing in peace. And yet the whole tone of the ending doesn't seem to be as much about forgiveness and reconciliation as it is Laban sensing that there's no way to win this one. And he he can't force Jacob to come back. I mean, notice after Jacob just goes off on Laban, I think he's he's been storing this one up. We got some passive aggressiveness coming out. He's just been holding it. Now he's unleashing it. 
you've been cheating me and I haven't been able to sleep and I've been cold and just throwing everything. Laban is so stubborn, he doesn't even acknowledge that he's done anything wrong and he's certainly not apologizing for it. And essentially he just says, fine, if you're going to be like that, let's just depart and let's just call it even. And their covenant is not to be allies. Their covenant is not to be enemies. To try to lessen the possibility of further hostility. The pillar is not really a monument to their friendship as much as it is a boundary line that neither one of them can cross. I think Laban is afraid that Jacob is going to keep getting stronger, that God is on his side and he may get stronger and richer and come back and attack him. And so once again, Laban is all about himself. Never mind the fact that he'll never see his daughters and his grandkids again. He just wants to be safe. And so Laban leaves and we never hear about him again, which is just as well. But as we think through Jacob's life, a good question to ask yourself is when people misuse me, when I have problems, when I have trials, even when I sin and bring these trials on myself, is God still working in my life? There's a sense that we equate hardship. God's left. God's abandoned us. Because if He hadn't, we wouldn't have to go through this. Right? But listen to how Jacob sees his situation, how he sees God so involved. All of these in, in chapter 31, verse 5, he says, The God of my fathers has been with me. Verse 7, he says, God did not permit him to harm me. Verse 9, he says, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And then in verse 42, If the God of my fathers had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and rebuked you. Jacob knows that God has been with him through his trials. He's protected him. He's favored him. It helps that God appears to him in dreams and He appears to Laban to warn him not to harm Jacob. And so what about us? I haven't had that dream. I don't know about you. And I don't think we're not given the same protection and the same promises that Jacob had been given. You're not a key part of redemptive history leading up to the birth of Jesus as Jacob is. I mean, that's what we're following throughout the Old Testament. And so I can't say for sure that God is going to prosper your business. I can't promise you that He will bring you out on top in family disagreements. I can't even tell you that He'll spare your life from your enemies. But I can tell you that He knows every hair on your head and that He's got your life in His hands. And nothing will happen to you that He does not allow. 
that if you are a believer, God has adopted you into his family and God cares intimately and intensely for his sons and daughters, no matter what our outward circumstances are telling us. God will never leave you or forsake you. What is our great proof of this? The great proof is that he turned his back on his own son. On the cross, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we sang in that offertory song, the father turned his face away as Jesus was crushed, as Jesus died. God did not protect His Son from death because He knew that that death would be the redemption of His people. That through Christ's blood, He would bring us into perfect fellowship and eternal life. And so we see that God turned His back and yet, even in that, He was working because that was God's plan. And God raised Jesus from the dead to accomplish our salvation. And because Jesus was forsaken and killed, we will never be forsaken. Father God, thank You that Your Scriptures speak richly to us. From the first words of Genesis from the beginning through Revelation, Your words of eternal life are there for us to read and to be encouraged and to understand Your ways. Thank You for Genesis and the account, accounts of the patriarchs and how we saw God protect Abraham and then Isaac and now Jacob who himself is such an imperfect man and a deceiver himself cheated his brother out of his birthright out of his blessing from his father and then ran away and then he was deceived himself multiple times by his father-in-law. And yet, you were with him because you promised to provide and to protect. Lord, we've been mistreated and we've mistreated others. Forgive us for those times. We pray for your safety and your love and your grace. But Lord, we pray that you would free us from the love of the things around us. As Laban was so in love with his money, so in love with what he could get from other people and manipulating them. Lord, free us from the idols that we think bring us life but really bring us nothing and, and make us take our eyes off You. 
and waste our lives. We miss the rich blessings of trusting in you and walking with you. God, you are never absent. You never lose sight of us. You are intensely involved and interested in what is happening in our lives. Help us to fall at your feet continually and ask for your love and your guidance. And thank you for your great grace and protection and salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.